Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and when I say Q Sting before the Bush Telegraph, I do know it's Fleetwood Mac's Tusk that we've ripped off for The Sting. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I haven't managed to watch a Disney film this week. Sorry. We'll let you off. Yeah. I am also sitting in a tree. Pretty much <laughs> almost sitting in a tree. We're being experimental this week. We're actually recording this in a garden because it is hot. More on that later. And I'm Jen Offord and it's probably not as hot as Love Island here but I still don't give a fuck about it. Later on, Bee Queen Kath Austin chats all things Bumble Drone and Honey ahead of Don't Step on a Bee Day on July the 10th. I mean, just don't. They're lovely. Give them some sugar water. I talked to Hannah Levintova of the brilliant Mother Jones about why retirement in the Supreme Court in America could spell disaster for abortion rights. Hazel Davis talks to Micron Theatre about its touring production Revolting Women, a look at the suffrage story through the eyes of Sylvia Pankhurst, and also I'll be chatting to Five Live legend Ellie Oldroyd about Wimbledon. But first, a proper geezer, furry birds and overpaid editors. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Fleetwood Mac. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we've got big dick energy. Well, to be fair, I am with British Gas, but the effect is much the same. David Duckenfield, the match commander on the day of the Hillsborough disaster, will face trial for manslaughter by gross negligence of 95 football fans. There were, of course, 96 victims, but one of those, Tony Bland, died from his injuries more than a year and a day after the event, so under law at the time, Duckenfield cannot be prosecuted for this. The decision was made last week by Sir Peter Openshaw at Preston Crown Court, who lifted an order preventing the trial of Duckenfield made 18 years ago. Four other men will also face trial for crimes relating to Hillsborough. Clearly, there's no funnies about this one. Just the hope that the trial, currently due to start on September the 10th, might finally bring some peace to the families of the victims and that those implicated may finally face some justice for their actions. Indeed, on, on a much more light-hearted note, a new advert from razor brand Billy is causing quite the kerfuffle in the US. It shows, brace yourself, Jean, women with body hair. What? You heard me. I didn't know we had hair. Is that allowed? Has anyone asked the men? Okay, so, yeah, we all know we've got hair, but this is the first time in a 100 years that a razor ad has featured hairy women, and the internet has lost its shit. Over on social media, women applauded its many close-ups of hairy armpits, toes, monobrows, and stomachs. This is damn beautiful, gush one Instagram user entirely in capital letters. With all this, is that Donald Trump? <laughs> he loves a bit of hairy Sad. <laughs> <laughs> With all this bear your hair love, you'd be forgiven for getting what a razor does, which is remove hair. Yay! Love your hair. It's natural. It's beautiful. But remove it immediately, you disgusting fairy entity. Yeah, that reminds me of that, um, that tremendous account, Performative Woke Man, in which somebody had asked him if they'd go out what he thought of women with body hair. And he said, I think it's entirely beautiful and you should embrace it, but let's just be friends, eh? <laughs> Britain has been basking in a heatwave since we last spoke, with temperatures reaching as high as Jesus fucking Christ <laughs> in some areas of the country and reports of sweaty-titted women screaming, I would have thought an entire can of deodorant all over my body would suffice, but what do I know? Into the sky. But seriously, with temperatures continuing to rise, check on your elderly neighbours, 
don't leave your dogs in cars. And if you go into the food bank, maybe put some sun cream in there this time. Message ends. Good message. Mm. And in something of a good news, bad news story, ITV flagship breakfast programme Good Morning Britain went double bubble last week as it took over the evening airwaves too. What did they call it, Jen? Well, it's quite an imaginative name. Uh, it's actually um, Good Evening Britain. Good See work. what they did there? Yeah, it's yeah? clever. Very clever. Yeah. And as if it wasn't bad enough that the nation had just witnessed their football team lose 1-0 to Belgium, those European wankers, it also had to endure ITV's meat-faced poster boy and human troll Piers Morgan directly afterwards. The good news came via some astute political commentary provided by an obviously irate Danny Dyer, who gave his own take on the ongoing clusterfuck that is Brexit. Talking about the confusion around the UK's planned withdrawal from the EU... Sorry, planned? <laughs> I mean, you know, well, sort of. <laughs> as in... It might happen. Dyer branded it a comedy, as in, no one's got a clue. <laughs> Continuing, the Ascender star voiced a question silently posed by many about former Conservative Prime Minister who landed us all in this shit show in the first place. So what's happened to that twat David Cameron? How comes he gets to scuttle off? As People's Princess Jeremy Corbyn did his damnedest to keep a straight face, Dyer ranted, he's in Europe, in Nice with his trotters up. Where is the geezer? Good question, Danny. Hands up, I am a long-term fan of Dyer's work, and I'm not talking about his acting chops or casually misogynist column in Zoo, but rather his magnificent social commentary, mainly on Twitter, and taking in everything from the 9-11 terrorists, a.k.a. them slags, to flies, a.k.a. shit-eating busy pricks. <laughs> and it, actually, also Wednesday, midweek prick. <laughs> Therefore, Brexit freaking his nut has made my day. Brexiteers were keen to point out to Remainers pissing themselves laughing that Dyer actually voted leave. Thus, they were missing the point that Boris Farage pulled the wool over a lot of people's eyes as to what leaving actually meant, means. For me, I've no idea what tense to use anymore. Regarding Dyer's Brexit diatribe, it's hard to pick just one, but my favourite moment was when Piers Morgan moved the conversation on and Dyer muttered twat one more time <laughs> for good measure. That second twat is everything. Presumably, it's aimed at errant former PM David Cameron, but I'm choosing to believe also takes in Morgan, a man scientifically proven to be a twat. Also, and I shit you not that this is true, Downing Street has officially rejected Dyer's claims that Brexit is, quote, a mad riddle, but defended his right to have a pop at former Prime Minister twat Cameron, saying, much like columnists and others, people who appear on broadcasts or newspapers are perfectly titled to their opinion. Well, while we might not know what happened to that twat Cameron, twat, <laughs> the whereabouts of his simpleton sidekick, George Osborne, is easier to track. Twat. <laughs> Although the wisdom of that location is still regularly called into question. <laughs> not least because the Evening Standard's economy has tanked since the former Chancellor took charge. Defenders of Osborne were keen to point out that the decline in the newspaper's fortunes, and to be clear, that's going from making a profit to making a £10 million loss, cannot be blamed entirely on Georgie Boy. And while it's true that he was only at the helm for six months of the year in question, and that the newspaper industry is suffering as a whole, it's also true to say that the editor bears responsibility for the state of a newspaper, which George would know if he had any journalistic experience whatsoever. Now, I know it's easy to criticise, but to be clear, I very much can 
being actually better qualified to do the job than he is and being in the position of actually having some ideas about how the evening standard could turn it around. The least of which is getting rid of its incredibly expensive and seemingly useless existing editor. Meanwhile, shares in the media group DMGT, owner of the Daily Mail, dropped 25% when it announced that it had made a £112 million loss after reporting a £202 million profit in 2016. There are all sorts of reasons for this, which I'm not going to go into here, because I don't give a fuck, and I hope the Daily Mail vanishes from the face of the earth. (laughs) Anyone fancy some good news? Oh, yes, please. The BBC has apologised to its former China editor, Carrie Gracie, who resigned in January over a dispute regarding equal pay. Not only that, they've only bloody given her the money she was underpaid by. When Gracie quit the corporation, she said she had refused a £45,000 pay rise because it still left a large disparity between her and the pay of two male editors at the same level, whom she said earned at least 50% more than her. In a statement, Gracie said, After all, today at the BBC, I can say I am equal. I would like women in workplaces up and down this country to be able to say the same. Gracie is donating the full undisclosed amount to gender equality and women's rights charity, The Fawcett Society. Classy, classy bird. I'm chucking in an extra snippet of good news, which is simply this. A Wisconsin man was injured after a camera installed in his shoe for the sole purpose of taking upskirt photos exploded. Lovely stuff. (laughs) (laughs) More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when even Piers Morgan gets to be outraged by how bafflingly stupid your opinions are as we try to tone down the register of our girly voices as we shriek in bewilderment. It's just not fair! Mickey, my ears, mate. <laughs> Former Chelsea and Tottenham defender Jason Cundy was forced to apologise this week after the TalkSport presenter had some controversial views on World Cup commentary, which he later said was foolish and out of order which is an unusual admission for someone on This Morning Britain. Cundy was invited to comment on Vicky Sparks becoming the first female commentator for a live World Cup match, and his delicate ears were not impressed by Sparks' term. He commented, I found it a tough listen. I prefer to hear a male voice. For 90 minutes listening to a high-pitched tone isn't what I want to hear. When there's a moment of drama, which there often is in football, I think that moment needs to be done with a slightly lower voice. Cundy, still reeling from the mosquitoes outside his local one-stop, accepted it wasn't anything to do with her knowledge, insight or ability. It was, he said, just the voice. So it's just as well he didn't play with uh, David Beckham then. Indeed. I, I love the fact that a woman starts doing a job and this morning Britain goes, shit, we need a man to tell us if this is yeah. OK. Yeah. It's and not, just, just to be clear, if Jason Cundy is listening and he might not, be able to hear us i just like to say jason you're a cunt <laughs> hannah here as you know i usually cover all our american politics issues but this week as you may have noticed something's happened over uh, across the atlantic which has caused quite a stir and rightly so which is the retirement of justice anthony kennedy from the supreme court Now, you might have seen a lot of people panicking about what that meant for all sorts of rights, and rightly so. This was actually too long to fit into the Bush Telegraph, and I don't actually think that I am expert enough. So, who do we go to? We go to the best media organisation in America, Mother Jones, 
and we asked them if they had some time to talk us through it. And I spent some time on the phone with their brilliant reporter, Hannah Leventover, and we talked about what this actually means for rights in America, in particular for abortion rights. We spoke over the phone. You might hear a slight buzzing in the background. That is my laptop because... Guess what? It's a thousand degrees in my house and it turns out that my laptop wanted to grumble as much as everybody else about the temperature. But what Hannah has to say is really important and really interesting. So I'm sure that you'll ride that noise out and listen. This seems to have come quite out of the blue, the retirement of Justice Kennedy. I mean, all eyes have been on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's quite the uh, advocate for women and minorities, but with the best will in the world is 85. Was it as big a surprise mm-hmm. as it appears to have been, this retirement? It wasn't a total surprise. There were a lot of rumors swirling that Justice Kennedy would would retire. And then as the term kind of went on and he kept siding with the conservatives on the court, it sort of seemed like a sign that he was throwing his hands up a little bit and just saying, okay, you know, I am, I'm, this is what I this is what I believe now, and this is who I side with. And so it kind of seemed like, well, if he's not going to be a swing vote anymore, then and he's not going to side with the progressives on the court. It, it doesn't seem like he wants to stay on anymore. It seems like he's kind of ready to, to step down. Well, he was appointed by Reagan, but, but he had traditionally been quite sort of a moderate, as Republicans' appointments go. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, he was appointed as what was then considered a conservative. And he's always been seen as technically a conservative, but one who sways uh, to the left, particularly on civil rights issues. So, you know, people have referred to him as the most powerful justice because some of the progressive justices, as well as some of the more conservative justices, would sort of always in oral arguments it almost felt like they were speaking towards him and trying to woo him to their one side or the other. So, you know, he was technically a conservative, but I think it meant something really different in the Reagan era to be a conservative, and he was one who was quite swayable on civil rights issues like abortion rights, like same-sex marriage, affirmative action, etc. So him stepping down makes people nervous because the likelihood that somebody who can be swayed in that way would be nominated and then confirmed by the Trump administration and then Congress is uh, much less likely now. This does seem like bad news. I mean, bad news for a lot of things, bad news for gay marriage, bad news for equal rights. But the one thing in general that seems to be sort of making everyone nervous is Roe v. Wade. I saw CNN's legal analyst, Jeffrey Tubin predict that abortion would be illegal in 20 states within 18 months which makes me want to start crying frankly is that hyperbole do you think or is this a real threat that's a great question i don't think it's total hyperbole you know people spoke in similar terms to a point right after trump was elected and it felt both real and hyperbolic then But now that there is another opening on the Supreme Court and Trump has vowed to appoint justices who are conservative and who are explicitly pro-life and open to overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, I think that statement is more real than ever. 
Of course, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, there are legal questions that go into that, right? You have to have the right piece of litigation that can make its way up to the Supreme Court. But someone I was talking to, a lawyer I was speaking to last week, made a very good point. Obviously, the way that litigation worked before the Supreme Court was the pro-life movement or the pro-choice movement. Well, I should say the pro-life movement kind of had to attack Roe from the margins, right? They had to find areas of the law that were unclear and seek to bring cases that would create interpretations that worked in their favor, that worked in sort of the anti-abortion movement's favor. So Whole Woman's Health a few years ago was a great example of that, where they uh, went after the undue burden standard, which is a standard for abortion restrictions that was set in a 1992 Supreme Court case. So that was the strategy, right? And that was how legal analysts looked at looked at what was going to come up and potentially what could be challenged. But now, if you have a court where a majority is actually open to overturning precedent, anything is up for grabs, right? You don't have to litigate on the margins anymore. You can just go for it. You can try to overturn precedent because that's actually possible. And I think that distinction, that's a legal moment that we haven't seen really ever in the United States where the likelihood of a majority that's willing to overturn a precedent it exists. And obviously we don't have that yet. We don't have a nominee yet. We don't have a justice yet. But Trump has been very clear that he wants a justice who will be pro-life and who will be willing to to overturn Roe, at least on paper. Can the Democrats stop this? Uh, that's, uh, so, yes, maybe. They don't have enough votes in the Senate. There's only 49 senators, Democratic senators. And, uh, you know, history... Three Democratic senators actually did vote for Neil Gorsuch back when he was being confirmed to the court. So there's no guarantee that the Democrats are going to vote as a block. But the first thing that they could do is vote as a block and then find a way to bring over one or two Republicans to their side. That's kind of the most immediate way. The other way is to work through elections, to have communities in states where senators are up for re-election, be they moderate Republicans, Republicans who might be swayable on this, have those communities rise up and say, we will not vote for you in November if this is how you're going to vote. Those are the kind of the two big ones, either with the, the threat of the oncoming midterms and really seeing state elections, the focus really change now before November to make a vote for a Trump nominee so toxic that those senators think twice about it. Is there anything we can do from over here? Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think if for folks who are watching this from other places, other countries, you know, especially you all, you know, over on your side of the ocean, Ireland just voted to legalize abortion, so you guys are sort of in a totally different I think that's what's Stage quite right so now. surprising about this, because Ireland has right. changed. Northern Ireland rights are back on the table. Um, the Isle of Man yeah. has changed its law. So it just seems so strange for us to be going forward and for you guys to be going backwards. I do think that internationally this will affect 
Trump's standing with leaders in certain countries that are more progressive on civil rights issues, on abortion. And depending on how this goes, depending who he nominates, depending on how toxic the debate gets in the states uh, around the confirmation and then the midterms and then a potential case before the court, I think it could absolutely affect Trump's standing with other world leaders even who want to show their own constituents that, you know, this isn't something that we're going to stand for. Uh, even though it's happening in another country, it's the United States where abortion has been legal for more than 40 years. And uh, I think there definitely could be those kinds of repercussions, again, kind of depending on how toxic and how um, explosive these next few months are in terms of debate around the nominee. So, so we have to be really noisy when he comes to visit us next week. I, yeah, I heard that there was going to be a huge protest. I saw something like 50,000 people. Yeah, well, there's actually, there's, a, there's actually two. I think especially after the Women's March had such a turnout, I think there is a, a desire for it. Um, good old-fashioned street protesting is making a comeback in the UK. Right. I think there will be a turnout, or I certainly hope there will be. Obviously, pro-choice groups in the United States are mobilizing now and being pretty vocal about the fact that they're gearing up for, you know, kind of the fight of their lives. And so having people who believe in this in other places kind of cheer them on, reach out, and support in whatever way they're possible, I'm sure that would be helpful um, and would be appreciated by groups in the States and it might bring sort of some inspiration. Who knows? Well, fingers crossed. Thank you so much for your time, Hannah. You've been brilliant. Thank you so much for having me on. So, as Hannah and I discussed, there are marches in London on the 13th of July when Donald Trump is here. Jen and I will be attending the Women's March, which begins at 11 o'clock. Details are online. Whatever it is you're annoyed with Donald Trump about, be it Medicare, be it what's happening at the border in America, be it Roe v. Wade, be it the risk to gay marriage, get out, get protesting, And if you see Jen and I, come and talk to us because we will be gathering views, probably relatively similar views to our own. But yeah, please get involved and we'll see you there. Hello, Mickey here. We sent intrepid reporter Hazel Davis to chat to Micron Theatre about its most recent touring production, Revolting Women, which is all about Sylvia Pankhurst. Micron Theatre is based in Yorkshire, but they get all over the country and they travel everywhere by canal, river and road. They are touring Revolting Women for basically forever, it seems, or at least till the end of the year. So to find out about tickets, you can visit micron.org.uk and Micron is M-I-K-R-O-N. Hazel kicked off the interview by asking Marianne to tell us a little bit about Micron. Micron is a theatre company that takes professional theatre anywhere for everyone by Canal, River and Road. So the big thing that Micron does is take theatre to non-theatre venues most of the time, so to spaces where people wouldn't expect to necessarily chance upon theatre. Such as? Such as allotments, village greens, bridges, tunnels, mm-hmm. aviaries, you name it, we've, we've performed in it. <laughs> what was the smallest space you would have performed in? Ooh. Now, there's, I don't know, Vashti, have you performed at the Anchor at High Offly? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is a lovely pub, and when in the summertime, outside, gorgeous weather, 200 people show up. Mm. The heavens open, 
and you move into effectively two front rooms <laughs> and you end up doing a radio version of the play, which is quite good fun. Yes, <laughs> but then you have a beer afterwards. Yes. <laughs> not, not during. Not during. No, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> kind of beer excited, but that must make it quite difficult to plan ahead when you don't quite know who's going to be there or, you know, how, you know, that sort of thing. Is that difficult to budget and plan for? It actually, it does completely mean we're very flexible. Because we've been doing it for 47 years, mm-hmm. uh, we're very good at it. Mm-hmm. We're, so we basically, we write a play that we know will work in many different spaces, and that's one of the challenges of writing for Micron, is that it's not for a space where people are completely devoted to watching a play. And so we, we think about that in the writing process. But it also means that when we direct the show, when we put the show together, we train the actors to have a good eye and to be able to adapt and so they really learn and hone their skills working for Micron as well. Presumably it translates well to a large theatre also. How do you manage that? It was interesting because Revolting Women, our play for this year, which is all about suffrage and Sylvia Pankhurst in particular, we wanted to open it in our hometown, but we also know that the Lawrence Valley Theatre is a big theatre, but it's also quite an intimate space to perform. You can hear everything in that in that space. And we've got a lovely following. We've got a fantastic following. We've been going for 47 years, and everyone wants to watch it. And we're, we're nearly sold out. Yeah, I know. I noticed that. I was trying to get an extra ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yes, interesting. So tell me about the play and how it came about. That's you, Vashti. So. Yes. <laughs> Revolting Women. Basically, it's the story of how some women got the vote in 1918. But it's told through the eyes of Sylvia Pankhurst and a group of East End women. And I became interested in Sylvia, because I think a lot of people have heard of Emmeline Pankhurst, who's the mum, going back a bit now. Back in 95, Micron actually did a play about votes for women. There was a character in it called Christabel Pankhurst, who's Emmeline's first daughter. And I think we might have both played. Did you play Christabel? I was in... The same play as you at a different time, but yes. I played the working class oh, suffragette. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a play back then, and Sylvia wasn't in that play. Obviously, you have to do quite a lot of research as an actor, because I was an actor then. And at that point, I remember reading about Sylvia, the second daughter, thinking, oh, right, but nobody really knows about Sylvia's story. Everyone knows about Emmeline and Christabel and the main narrative of the suffragettes. So I became interested in her then and read a lot, a lot about her and I kind of put it down on a list. You know, as a writer, you think, OK, that, that, that might make a good play. So it was on a list for many years and then when this opportunity came up, I thought, OK, let's, let's see if I can create a story around Sylvia. So how much of it is true? How much of it is yeah, made up? <laughs> the main story is true. I mean, Sylvia sort of went against her mother and her sister's wishes, really and went out to the east end of London to recruit working-class women and men mm-hmm. to join in the campaign. And she stayed there, and this is in 1912, she stayed there and recruited and campaigned with these women. And that drew her into militancy. And she ends up going to the extremes. I won't tell you the story. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't give anything away. <laughs> but the story is true. The mother main character in the play is a woman called Letty, and she is a fictional character, but she is based on many of the women that she worked with in the East End. And Sylvia and Letty become very close. They, they work together with the, with the federation that they set up to try and get Asquith, the Liberal Prime Minister of the day, to, to listen to them. 
not very successfully, <laughs> uh, but they keep trying and they keep trying and the story unfolds. And this is a comedy? It's, well, Micron, true Micron style. A Micron show is always a mixture of a really good story, original songs and the use of humour. And in this story, I think the humour comes out of some of the characters, some of the songs, and also the story is told by a chorus of characters storytellers if you like larger than life characters and they're very opinionated <laughs> they provide a lot of the humor and one of them in fact is is a woman who is adamantly opposed to women getting the vote oh, which is quite surprising as, as i researched more that there's a huge anti-suffrage mm. movement um, which involved a lot of women. I find that really fascinating. Yes, actually. yeah. yeah if you've, what, have you seen Up the Women? The, um, yes. The which yes. is so good, isn't it? It's very funny, yeah. <laughs> but that, it, it's just really fascinating how they didn't want... Well, they could. They were scared of upsetting the status quo. And yes. They, had, they stood, stood to lose an awful lot, didn't they? Really? So they did, and, they, and a lot terrifying. of women thought they had enough influence mm-hmm. outside Parliament, you know, in their homes. They could influence their husbands or whatever mm. in other ways, so... Yeah. <laughs> And it must be really interesting doing this now. You mentioned that you were in a, a similar play in '95, a sort of. So, how different is it the environment that we're in now? How different mm. does it feel to be doing something like this? Well, in the present climate, yeah. with all this <laughs> sexual harassment stuff going on, it seems even more important in a way because mm. that whole idea of, of just speaking out—if there is something that's wrong and something that needs changing—then it's still really important to speak out and. and and to, to get to the truth and to get equality. Equality is, is, the, is at the heart of it, really. It feels like there's a real movement to bring these characters, these kind of role models, back to life for our young women. I've got two mm. daughters who are five and six, and it feels like there's a real push towards that, actually, currently. So that's quite... How, how much of that is kind of influences the way you write? And role models are so important to have, aren't they? And I think with Sylvia, what attracted me... To her in particular was she's got such a big vision of, of how society could be she's a complete idealist really which is great you know that's kind of the latches you onto her in a way to have such a big vision like that where she really passionately believed that society could be a place where everyone was equal you know everyone fulfilled their potential you know and, and were able to to enjoy life as well as as to work universal suffrage for men and women, all women. So that is very attractive. And although she's ultimately disappointed at the end of the play, she fights for that, for, for her principles. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... You can't Still knock that, can you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The other thing is, is that she's a, real, she's a socialist suffragette, she is, isn't she, completely. Sylvia? And since I've taken over as artistic director at Micron, I've found it really important to push strong female characters. So we've always had two men and two women. And we tell the stories of the little people behind the big events, also sort of the unheard people, which is why it's nice to tell Sylvia's story. But often, the big events that we hear about in history are male-dominated or told by men, and so... I really push for strong female characters. And I think even between 95, I was doing a play then, mm. which was written by men. Yes. And, and when I reread it, I loved that play. And when I reread it, I was like, yeah, great play, but it's of its time mm. and we need a female voice with this. And so, you know, I've just watched an excerpt of the rehearsal and it's so nice to see strong 
women being played by strong female actresses. <laughs> and, and it is important for our daughters and for our, for my sons. I've got three boys. It's of course, yeah, sorry. I didn't no, no, but like, absolutely. <laughs> for them to see women having a voice. And I think the political chi- climate has changed. And it's, it's time now for us to realise that things are changing. If we don't do something about it, there's such complacency around and... I just hope that this play has a little bit of a rah and gets people going. <laughs> <laughs> and has it, when you were researching it, did you change any of your opinions? Did you kind of, uh, were they fairly set and did you change, you know, did everything tell you or did you think, oh, I hadn't thought about that? Well, one thing that opened my eyes, I suppose, I mean, I suppose I come from, I call myself a socialist, I'm sort of left wing, so I kind of immediately connected with a lot of Sylvia's principles. But I think that the other character, Letty, who's a working-class woman from the East End, what I didn't realise and I discovered was that actually, for a lot of working-class women, it was actually really hard to, to be part of a political movement to make those sacrifices to go and protest. Mm-hmm. Letty, in the play, has got three children. She's widowed, so she hasn't got a husband. She's got to work, you know, to feed her children. She's not in that privileged position that Silver is in, that Silver can go off to prison and go on hunger strike and... A lot of working women, I think it found really hard. It didn't stop them, but there was a lot more barriers in the way for them to, to join in with, with making, making change, I suppose. And that's still relevant today. Mm. I'd say so. Yeah. It's, it's massively it's relevant, hugely today. relevant today. And the, and the divide in the play, the kind of the monetary divide mm. between the classes, uh, I think that's, that's much more prevalent nowadays as well. So 100 years later. I know. I mean, the, yeah. <laughs> obviously things have changed women's status has changed. I mean, it's, we're miles ahead from 100 years ago, but... It's quite interesting, when you talked about the play being written by a man in 19... I think that's changed alone, that we would see a play about women's rights written by a man, and I'd go, written by a man, and we'd say something yeah. about it, wouldn't we? Or say, we can't have this, or what? You know, even 20 years ago, we thought, well, yeah, that's fine, we can accept that, can't we? So I think that's changing. The just kind of demanding things be done by women. Yes, changed, and women's voice. That feels quite... Yes, even if we didn't, re- I didn't realise it twenty years ago that that's what was happening. I was like, oh yeah, that's good. That's women's rights. Yay! Yeah. And you didn't even question where it's mm. come from or whose whose lens it's through, do you? So no, we just accepted it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that does definitely feel like it's changing. So tell me how important the female figures are for you in the plays that you present and the kind of stories that you explore. Hugely important. Micron is a female-led organisation and it's very important for us that we are getting female stories out there. So a couple of years ago we celebrated 100 years of the Women's Institute and we told the story Raising Agents, which celebrated them. A couple of years ago we also did a play called Canary Girls, which was about the women who worked in the munitions factories during World War One. Vashti's about to write us another play, which is all about the Wrens, which you might want to tell us a bit about. Yeah, well I'm researching at the moment. It's fascinating. The... Women's Royal Navy Service. And in the Second World War, women became wrens and did lots of work. They weren't actually able to serve on board Navy ships, but they could do a lot of other jobs. And a lot of women had a lot of adventures. <laughs> and it's, it's a very interesting time and it's, yeah... I'm very, very excited about writing it. The thing is, Micron tells a story about social movements or big events in history, and a lot of those in British history are told from a man's point of view, and kind of we're interested in redressing that balance. Hi, I'm here in Cambridge with... 
Kath Austin, the CEO and founder of BB Wraps. Thanks for joining us, Kath. Hi, well, thanks actually, for having I've joined, me. I've joined you in your, in your new, but also red hot. Office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I take it the fact that you've moved is, is good news. That's an expansion of your of your business. Yeah, yeah. We um, we started BB Wraps in my in my house, and it really did start as like an organic grassroots thing. And we've just grown so much over the last year and a half that well, the next logical step was to move into a commercial premises, and and here we are, which is kind of weird and exciting yeah. at the same time. So tell us what you make. Okay, so um, BB wraps are reusable beeswax food wraps that you use in exactly the same way as cling film. So you wrap them around food or bowls and they mould to the heat of your hands so the, the, the beeswax softens ever so slightly and then as it cools it, it keeps its shape, just like cling film but with no plastic and unlike plastic, it breathes. So it actually saves on food waste as well. So where food gets suffocated with plastic in a BB wrap, it can breathe and it lasts much longer. And it's hygienic. Mm, yes. Yeah, so beeswax is antimicrobial and um, can stop bacteria forming. Um, and again, because it breathes, it doesn't have water in there, which is a great breeding ground for bacteria. So they are super good like that. And it sticks to itself. Yeah. Yes. yes it's well, I've seen some. I've been downstairs looking at them. And from what I see, it starts off as fabric and then it's coated in the beeswax. Yes. And then you bake it? No, no. It so we, um, be- we, we melt a formula of beeswax, tree resin and jojoba oil. And we use those other two ingredients to get them to be extra grippy, but also really pliable. And those are natural ingredients. Jojoba oil is a carrier oil um, that they use in aromatherapy. And tree resin is the thing that gymnasts use to make their, their hands super grippy. Oh, really? Yeah. It's often known as uh, colophony or uh, rosin. Um, and so we add a little bit of that in to, to help it be grippy. And then uh, we melt this mixture down and we paint it on when it's molten onto the hot the fabric is heated and we paint it on hot and then we just hang it up to dry and because beeswax it softens and then solidifies so quickly it's dry within a few minutes so how much beeswax do, do you go through <laughs> <laughs> oh just kilos of it kilos so downstairs at the moment in as you'll see on the way out and there's probably about 60 kilos sitting there which was our most recent delivery and we use beeswax from local beekeepers only um, it's really important that we do that. Um, firstly, because it smells amazing and commercial beeswax loses all of that lovely aroma because it's been processed. The second reason is because local beekeepers are much more likely to have higher welfare standards for the bees. And there's no point using commercial beeswax if they don't look after the bees because we want to perpetuate the population. When you say commercial, where is that coming from? All over Europe. Okay. So when you say local? I mean Saffron Walden. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and we're in Cambridge, so it's like ten miles down the road. Okay, so how many how many beekeepers do you work with? Oh gosh, I've lost count now. The beekeeper that we get most of our beeswax from has over a hundred hives, and he has friends who also have large uh, setups like that. But we also work with beekeepers who have like one or two hives, and what they would do with their beeswax before and uh, before working with us is they would send it back to the company that produce the foundations for the bees to build on okay. and they there's no money involved they just swap beeswax for foundations but it means just driving to leicestershire it's a bit of a yeah. trek for them so they're really happy to sell it to us so bees there's a day this week called don't step on a bee day which seems it seems ridiculous that oh, you yeah, have don't to do that people that they shouldn't do that but <laughs> i've been i've done a bit of research into bees and i have to say there's lots of differing opinions on the current state of bees yeah. in this country but none of them are good 
Mm. Really. In fact, the other day, David Attenborough, who I'd like to think is an authority, um, mm. was encouraging people to pep bees up with uh, sugar, sugar water. Sugar water, yeah. And he was repeating something, a, a figure was actually... Um, I think it's originally attributed to Einstein, but I don't think it's right that um, if, if the, the bee population dies. goes, we've got four years before we go as well. Well, if you think about it, um, there is some truth in it because um, bees are pollinators, but they're not the only pollinators, but they're prolific. There's 50,000 bees in a hive on average. Bumblebees hives are, or bumblebee nests are like 300. I'm not sure on the populations of each, but I know that there are other pollinators, so it's not uh, I guess it's not as desperate as that. But whatever kills the bees, you just don't know how it would affect the rest. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I saw that in the Parliament they had a debate in November in which they said that pollinators, including bees, yeah. added £600 million a year to the economy. They do. Which is quite incredible, really. Well, if you think about what they do, they pollinate anything that we grow. So if you say, that's all your fruit and veg for a start, and then anything that the animals that we eat whatever they eat needs to be pollinated and so that wouldn't happen and any of the dairy so i don't really think there's much left after that no so actually yeah it's pretty dire if we did lose pollinators and we are aren't we i think i think that friends of the earth say one in ten of europe's species is facing extinction yeah there is a decline um i'm i hear differing stories about how severe it is but why I think our business and, and using beeswax wraps is so important is because we give another reason yeah. to perpetuate the population. So, yeah, it, it does seem pretty dire, but I'm all we can do is try harder to yeah. to help that. Have you been a beekeeper yourself? Yeah, I have. I wouldn't say that I was um, a long-term beekeeper. I started beekeeping at a place called Wandlebury around the corner up here, and then I got pregnant and I couldn't get in the beekeeping suit. So, <laughs> so that, that ended pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but after that, I, I've always been drawn to bees and I've loved them. And I get the kids in the garden, giving them the honeyed water, yeah. the, the sugared water, and, and we're not scared of them. And, and I keep saying any life-loving bee doesn't want to sting you because... They're so docile, so I've, I'm so glad that I've kind of accidentally found a business where I'm working with them again. And they are, I mean, my mum has a, a really big heebie-jeebie, is it called? The big plant that they absolutely love. Oh. In her garden, it's got like little purple flowers, and you can tell when they've been on it because the flowers go white when they've sucked everything yeah. out of it. Yeah. And she, I walked past that the other day, and there must have been 40 bees having yeah. the time of their life on that. Yeah. And, of course... They don't sting you. No, they're, they're, they're no, not wasps. No. They're not wasps. They're not hornets, and they don't want to sting because they've got a barbed stinger. So if they sting, it gets stuck in your skin, and then when they pull away, it tears off and they die. Yeah, so it's not a happy situation <laughs> for the honeybee. It seems to be a bit of a, a perfect storm for bees of, you know, climate change, pesticides, yeah, uh, disease, you know, invasive species, yeah. all sorts of things that it's looking really bad for them. Mm. Do, you, do you know of any sort of projects that are working to, to do more with bees? Well, we, we work with the um, Cambridgeshire Beekeeping Association um, just to encourage the hobbyists to carry on beekeeping because it tends to be something people do when they're a bit older yeah. and they've got more time that be they take up so much of the summer weekends that you can't be you know off to every festival every weekend if you want to keep bees so i oh, well, how much of it, how much of a, a job is it in that case? oh it's, it's huge it's um in terms of 
actual time it's probably not that much but it's the regularity right um so you need to be in that hive at least once a week because the minute the 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 hive grows to a certain size the the queen will um will they'll start making queen cells so that um they swarm so the the current queen will be like um i'm out of here they're 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 gonna usurp me so um that's when they swarm and they they go to another try and find another home so you can't let that happen you have to destroy all the queen cells and then put another super in so that there's room for them all so if you if you left them that's when swarms happen so you have to go in every week check everything's all right i've only already have one real experience with bees which is i i had um some bees made a hive underground in my garden oh yeah that's normal would uh, they be bumblebees i don't they, I, they didn't look like bumblebees but I don't know that I would, because I've got that idea that bumblebees are those big fuzzy ones. Oh, that's the queen. That's the queen, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so bumblebees are actually quite small, but they're fluffy. Yeah, they were very, they were little. Yeah. And they, I saw these holes that looked like someone had been like stabbing a stick in the ground. I was like, that's weird. And then lots of bees came out. So I called the bee expert and, and <laughs> she came and said, I can't do anything with it. You just have to wait for them to abandon yeah. the, the underground hive, which took about... See, it was about three months. Yeah. I, I didn't really go down the bottom of the garden very much at that point, I have to say. Because, yeah, um, they, by the end of the season, they'll either, they'll just leave the hive, I guess. So Yeah. And then as soon as the new season comes, the queen will start roaming around looking for somewhere else to lay her eggs. That's the life, isn't it? Yeah. I love those zeppelin bumblebees that you see in the garden. You can hear them coming before you see them. <laughs> so what's next for baby wraps? We want to grow, and the reason we want to do that is because we're a social venture. We want people to use something sustainable instead of plastic, and we want people to reduce their food waste because we've got massive food shortages across the world, and we want to change behaviours and habits, and we, I know how hard that is. I've been using them for five or six years, and I'm really happy with them now, And but in the beginning it was like, oh, God, I've got to wash it, blah, blah, blah. But actually it's so much better. So our, our aim is to just grow as fast as we can, produce as many as we can, sell as many as we can, and get people using them instead of plastic. Yeah. That's where we're going. So we're working on um, building some new equipment, which is going to help us produce them much faster. We've got an amazing partnership with... Um, a company in Cambridge who are helping us to do that. We're in the process of designing some new fabric, which is really exciting. And um, we've got some really interesting, exciting partnerships coming up with Dockers. I can't say too much about it, really, but um, okay. there's lots to say in the next few months. In the meanwhile, if somebody <laughs> wanted to get a hold of some now, yeah. where where will they find so we've got we've got plenty of stockists, especially in Cambridge. But um, if you can't find a stockist, then you go to bbwraps.com and you can order them straight up there, or you can have a look at our stockist lists, read our blog, <laughs> have a look around. Terrific! Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Kat. You're welcome. Thanks for coming in. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm speaking to Ellie Oldroyd, Five Live legend, who will be presenting coverage for BBC Five Live over the course of Wimbledon. And indeed, I am talking to her about Wimbledon. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Jen. Wimbledon starts at the time of recording this. Wimbledon is starting on Monday, which is tomorrow. It's actually Sunday evening. So by the time you hear this on Wednesday, all of this could be completely wrong. (laughs) 
but let's just let's let's hope not um but you you never know and that's probably actually a good point to start with actually in the women's game you do never know so yeah no, I think that's absolutely right I, I think I've just been sitting down and doing my prep for the fortnight and the last six Grand Slam titles have been won by Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal whereas in the women's draw uh, the defending champion at Wimbledon is Garbina Muguruza the Australian Open champion is Caroline Wozniacki the French Open champion is Simona Hallett and uh, the US Open champion is Sloane Stevens. so so really, you know, where do you, where do you start with this? I, I kind of think, you know, and, and I haven't mentioned Serena Williams yet either. Yes. So I think it's a massively open draw. I, I saw somewhere that 20 different people could possibly win it. But, but I'm, I'm just hoping that it's, you know, it lives up to, the, to the, the idea that it is open, but we're going to see lots of exciting matches because these are all Grand Slam winners. Yes. And, and there are, there are as, as you've just pointed out, there are a lot of them in the in the women's draw. Looking at those people and some of the others who have always because Simone Halep has only just won her first Grand Slam like a month ago at, at the French Open. Yeah, I know, and and it's it's been you know we've been expecting her to win it for such a long time. I think I think I did I did fighting talk on Five Live a couple of years ago, and they said right, okay, who is your tip for the French Open? And I said Simona Halep, and then she got knocked out in the third round or something like that, and I felt felt like a bit of an idiot. But you know, but but I, th- I think it was clear that she was going to win a Grand Slam eventually because she was too good not to. And Caroline Wozniacki as well, who's been world number one and had never won a Grand Slam until this year, and then she she won the the Australian Open. So so players like this have won a whole hatful of WTA tour titles. You know, um, they've been both been number one in the world, um, and and they've and they've finally they've finally done it. But but I do you know I do wonder how much the dominance of Serena Williams, but the fact that she has dominated so much that every time she's in the draw, she's almost represented a barrier for, for, for players where they've just, you know, they've just lost confidence as soon as they've, they've set foot on court mm. and looked her on the other side of the net. So so maybe it's part of that, but maybe it's it's just time. I mean, you know, you, you also look at the fact that Simona Halep is only 26. Sure. Caroline Wozniak is only 27. Um, Sloane Stevens is, is 25. So they're, they're all kind of maturing if you like they're coming into that stage yeah. where most people I mean unless you are Maria Sharapova who won uh, Wimbledon at the age of 17 that maybe mid-20s is a time when you, you would be expecting to, to, to be winning Grand Slams because it's a difficult thing to do you know to go through an entire fortnight of tennis yeah. and win all of those matches and to become champion takes a, a hell of a lot of doing oh yeah and it's almost you know once you get past the you know, the first round, it's almost back to back to back, isn't it? It's kind of, they, they don't yeah, really have Yeah, exactly, any... exactly. You know, you, you've got to have the, the the physical, obviously the physical attributes, but the mental concentration as well, mm. you know, to go away, re, regroup, play another game, play another day. I think the other thing about, about this this year is that there are people outside those that we've mentioned already. I mean, Garbina Muguruza, who is the defending champion, mm. and she's, you know, she's had a great record at reaching Grand Slam finals, so so she can't be discounted. You've got Maria Sharapova as well, who obviously served her, her 15-month ban, but but then came back um, and, and is looking on, on decent form again. But you've got other players who, who are winning titles on grass as well. And and I think we could hopefully be, I mean, I really hope so, because I think she's an amazing person. We're talking about Petra Kvitova, who's double champion at Wimbledon. But it, it's extraordinary to think that, you know, at the end of 2016, so only 18 months ago, she was the victim of this horrendous oh, attack yeah. in her own home. A, a man 
with a knife, attacked her um, and and pretty much al- almost severed one of the fingers on her left mm-hmm. hand, which is her racket hand. She had nerve and, and tendon damage. She, she somehow was able to to get her hand back into into the state to, to not only hold her racket again you know at one stage she thought she might lose a finger you know she mm. thought she might not be able to brush her teeth again but she's won five titles in 2018 including the one on on, on grass at birmingham a couple of weeks ago so i think she is a, a really really strong contender okay so is there anyone else in the women's draw any sort of like dark horses maybe people that we don't know that much about if you fancied like a bit of a flutter who would you look at? Well, I mean, here's, here's another one for you. And, and I really like her story as well. Ashley Barty. I mean, she took it two years out of the game at, at the end of 2014 to go and play cricket. Mm. And she's a good cricketer. You know, she'd never really played much cricket before. She's kind of fell out of love with tennis for a bit. So she went off to play cricket and she played in the first season of the Women's Big Bash League for Brisbane Heat. And and she is, you know, but, but then she, she had that break. She had a mental, a, a bit of a, a mental timeout from, from tennis and, and then came back in 2016. And she's won the title on grass this year as well. She won the title at, at Nottingham, um, beating Johanna Conter in the process. So she would be a really interesting person to see. But I mean, you know, can you imagine... Can you imagine Venus Williams as well? I mean, five times Wimbledon champion. She's seeded number nine. She reached the final last year. Mm. This will be the 79th time she's been in the main draw at a Grand Slam event at the age of 38. And nothing would be more incredible, I don't think, than, than Serena Williams winning the title again here. I mean, she's mm. done it seven times already. Mm. But the way that she has talked about coming back from the birth of her daughter has been some of the most honest conversations around what it's actually like to be not only a a champion but a woman as well Um, and I have so much admiration for the for the way that she's talked you know the fact that she was she was playing back at the French Open um, in this this all-in-one bodysuit and she was saying look hey you know you know your body isn't perfect when you have when you have a baby, it mm. takes time to come back from these things. And but she's talked about the mental effects of, of motherhood as well, and the fact that she gets incredibly emotional at times when she hadn't really done so before. You know, she burst into tears. Mm. She, she she actually took Olympia, her daughter, onto centre court at Wimbledon. You may have seen it on on her social media feed. Mm. But she took her onto centre court, and she said she started telling her a story about this little girl from Compton who had a dream of playing in the Wimbledon final. And as she was telling her baby daughter this she started to cry and and that sounds like such an unserene thing so the, the facade the facade of invincibility has has cracked and but i i love this this softer serena i mean you know for, for her to be an amazing champion is one thing and we can look at her her titles you know the number of titles that she's won 23 grand slam titles and have a huge admiration but i think it would be fair to say that that not everybody has loved serena in the way that you think she deserves to be loved but but she, the fact that she's shown this vulnerability I, I think w- will have won her so many more fans this year at Wimbledon and I think she will be hugely popular wherever she goes and actually she starts her campaign on on number one court rather than centre court which which is you know I mean, it's hardly a step down number one court is a very nice court it will be f- so interesting to see how far she can go in this draw and I think it's absolutely right by the way that she is seeded you might argue yeah. she's been out of the game she's not at the uh, you know her best form that's a space that someone else could potentially take it, it is it, I think it's a, it's a very complex one and you can you can see how disappointing it is for uh, I think it's Dominika Sibylkova who's missed out who, you know who would have been ranked 32 and got that that 32 
to seed. But but it's but I, I, what I don't really understand is why the the seeding system is different for men and for women. So so the ATP seed men depend you know with with some kind of weighting on how they played on grass courts before, because um, obviously grass courts are different from any other other courts that they play on during the year, and and the WTA don't do that. But but I, but I mean I think I think the whole question of whether sportswomen should be able to take a break from their career and go and have have kids is 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 so complicated because I think for most most top sportswomen you know if they if they're going to have if they want to have a family then they pretty much have to wait till their career is ended because you know so they're they're being punished for for wanting to carry on playing yeah. their career you know by potentially not them being able to have have kids themselves but you then could say that the the, the people who who can't take time out to have a baby and i'm kind of guessing that probably you know i mean and it's and it's, it's happened plenty of times before plenty of women on the tour have, have had kids and i'm guessing that probably not all of them have the access to the the child care facilities or, or the potential funding of child care that that serena does because mm. you know she's clearly you know she's she's not short of a bob or two no absolutely but, but 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 at the same time, I think it sends out a very powerful message that that of course you have you know, you know to, to to take a break to have a child is something which is a right mm. for all of the rest of us. So you know, so if we're saying that that you know, for me as a broadcaster, I was able to take a, a, a break from my career, have maternity leave, come back to where I was before. You know, if you work in the city, you you'd like to be able to take a break from mm. your career, come back to where you were before. You know, if you if you work in Tesco's you'd like to think that you could come you have a kid come back and, and, and carry on your, your your job you know and, and not be penalized for, for taking that break to have kids you know people have to have kids you know it's, it's, how, the, it's how we perpetuate you know the species yes, yes, in most basic terms so yeah. so I, I think for, for for it to happen to Serena you know is will hopefully then set a precedent for, for other sports and other people how about Joe Conta well, I mean, you look at Joe Conta last year, you know, she got all the way to the semi-final. She had a most fantastic year. Um, she reached the semi-final. We all got incredibly excited, talked about her, and she just seemed to have, you know, she's always had had the physical game, but she seemed to have, have, have had her mental game sorted out at that stage as well. Um, and, and so we thought, we, you know, we really got, we really did get excited about, about Joe Conta. And then she just, from that point onwards, from the, the semi-final at Wimbledon, she absolutely disappeared off the face of the planet really apparently i mean she she could hardly win a game i think she may have won won two games in the whole of the rest of the year so it was it was a real fall from that high point she had she she had this this mental coach who she got on incredibly well with um and 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 he very sadly died last year and then her her she split from her coach as well and it just just all seemed to go a bit wrong for her. But she does seem to have been coming back into a bit of form here. You know, she reached the final at, at Nottingham. She won a couple of rounds at Eastbourne as well. So, so you know, she is, she's very, you know, she's, she's the British number one. So we will keep our fingers crossed for her. But I mean, I, I, I do, I, I really do hope that, that she can get some confidence back and just, just getting a few games, just, you know, winning a few games, winning a few matches, getting a few, uh, 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 you know, getting the W under your belt a few times mm -hmm. um, will be fantastic for her. But, but we've also got, we've actually got six British wild cards as well Ooh. on the women's side. So Katie Bolton, Naomi Brody, um, Harriet Dark, Katie Dunn, Katie Swan, and Gabriella Taylor. I mean, any one of those might or might not win a match. 
uh, then we'll get very excited. But it's it is it is tough because there are some really good quality players in the draw. But playing playing at home, playing on grass, and I think for Contra as well. You know, she she's she is quite a home bird. You know, she she does like playing. At a, in front of a home crowd mm-hmm. and at her home grand slam, you know, and it always gives a bit of a boost to the British players. So, so it will be, it will be fantastic. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell our listeners? In, I mean, I'm sure they've seen already by Wednesday, but where can they find? Where can they find all the wonderful BBC coverage of Wimbledon? Well, it'll be on BBC One and BBC. Two, of course, with uh, with a T, but um, but I've got to give a massive plug to to our five live coverage, which which starts midday midday or twelve thirty every day on five live um, with myself and and Tony Livesey in the chair, and then we've got um, people like Russell Fuller and Gigi Salmon leading the commentary team, and people like Pat Cash will be dropping in as well, and uh, and and hopefully we'll see Marion Bartley at various stages. So so lots of you know lots lots of great pundits, and it's, it's just a good conversation. I just love the fact that we you know we, we really enjoy ourselves and everyone gets on well and it's always always a bit of a laugh um and um and, and they'll you'll also be able to hear it on sports extra as well because because there is some football still continuing um yeah, throughout the week we've got a, a world cup quarterfinals semi-finals to look forward to um but uh, but 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 during the, the fortnight those will be you know we will be mixing and matching between five live and sports extra so it could be one of those where you've got something on the tv something on five live and something on sports extra on your iplayer radio app that's all from us this week thanks very much for joining us we hope you had a lovely time you know we always have a lovely time we tell you every week we'll be back next week with uh, lots and lots of brilliant stuff including a chat with the very excellent Murray Demwright about abortion legislation in Ireland and Hibbo Wadere about FGM Coming up for you on Sunday, Dr Susie Gage will be talking to us about drugs and there's a playlist on that theme coming too, so look out for that. If you'd like to come and see us in the flesh, we've got lots and lots of shows coming up. We've got four, four in Edinburgh this August and we have announced some pretty spectacular names for those. We've got two in-conversation gigs featuring the likes of Louisa Omilan, Janine Garofalo, Aisha Hazarika, and Lucy Porter. It's pretty good, right? Also, we've got two stand-up gigs with just like with actually too many names to mention, but there are a lot. Go and have a look at our page on Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and get yourself a ticket. We've got more announcements coming up soon about London shows over the autumn. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well. Please do have a look for us on Twitter. We are at Standard Issue UK. And you can also find us individually at Mixter Noonan, at That Dunleavy and at Inspirer Jen. You can also find us on Facebook and indeed Instagram. Also, if you've got a second, it would be ever so nice if you would pop yourself over to iTunes and rate and review us. It's really helpful for us to spread the word or just tell a pal. Just tell them we're brilliant. Stick your headphones in their ears in a non-aggressive fashion and, and, you know, just give them some joy. I've been wanging on for ages now, so that's all from me. Thanks very much for joining us and all that remains for me to say is indeed stay frosty. Standard Issue for All Women.